Thank you, Bernhard. Let there be light. <laughs> Works almost every time. I want to talk to you this morning about worry and anxiety. Don't worry and don't be anxious. Jesus has much to say about these things, and you and I, as believers, are the recipients of His grace and His provision, and we don't have to worry. Isn't that exciting? So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I want to continue our study. For those of you visiting with us this morning, we are on a long-term study through the Gospels, and we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for some months, and we are right smack in the middle of it right now. Question. Does Jesus, in verses 19 through 24, the passage we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where he says, do not store up treasure on earth, but rather store up treasure in heaven. Does Jesus in that passage minimize or does he maximize the ultimate significance of material possessions? What do you think? Let's have a vote. How many think he minimizes the ultimate value of of material possessions? How many think he maximizes? Okay, some of you aren't voting. I want to suggest to you that he minimizes the ultimate significance of material possessions. We do just the opposite. What do we do? We maximize them. It's all about material stuff. It's all about physical survival in our life, accumulating. That's a challenge for us as humans, even as believers. We come into the church, we come out of the world, we we are enculturated in a worldly culture. We grow up in a worldly culture. We're trained and taught these things. We come out of that culture. And we're born again. And we need to be re-enculturated into a brand new culture with a brand new value system that doesn't emphasize and doesn't maximize the ultimate significance or value of material stuff. We have a whole different view of life as believers. This is critical. This is some of the things that Jesus talks to us about. And if we are truly going to be fruitful Christians, it's imperative that we embrace his value system. And it's critical that we exhibit an uncompromising trust or faith in him, his word, and his care for us. At some point, you have to say, I trust you, and I'm not going to worry. I trust you. I'm not going to be anxious. I trust you. That that alone allows you to move forward in faith and to grow and to mature. Your therapist will not tell you that. Only your pastor and Jesus. Listen closely this morning. This is very, very important. In storing up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Isn't that true? 
If you're committed to that value system and you realize that that's, that's the only place, heaven, where, where, where the treasure that we store up there is going to last. I want to invest more and more in heaven. That can leave the human part of you feeling insecure and anxious about this life, can't it? You can say, but, but, but what about what I have to work? I have, to, my, I have a family. I have, I have to provide. I have to provide. You can be very anxious and worried about the materials, your material existence. You can be tempted to worry. Anybody this week tempted to worry? Just a few of you. Okay. If you were here last week, you, you learned you don't have to worry. Some of you weren't here last week, obviously. Look with me at verse 25. I'm going to read that section, the second section, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, that's a, that's a, that's a transitionary word. That's a, that's a hinge, if you will. Everything he said before sets us up for what he's going to say now. Store up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Though you're tempted to worry, therefore, don't. Don't worry. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, of you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How many have learned that? Yes. We can't let our earthly concerns become sources of worry and anxiety. We have concerns. There are concerns about life, about every aspect of life. But we dare not let them slide over, slip over into worry and anxiety. It's very human to do that. It's very natural to do that. But we, we are supernatural now, aren't we? We're supernatural people. We have God's power and grace and spirit living in us to enable us to live at a higher plane. <coughs> the command not to worry, by the way, does not imply complete lack of concern. Paul had his concern for the churches. We have genuine concerns, but we don't worry. We're not anxious. We refuse to go there. Nor does this command not to worry call people to be unwilling to work and supply their own needs. 
God has made us such that we are to be productive. He's made us to work, but not to be anxious. Instead, Jesus is highlighting in these passages kingdom values and kingdom priorities. That's always our challenge. Am I living by worldly values and worldly priorities? Am I living by kingdom values and kingdom priorities? That's the attitude towards life. Jesus says that his his disciples should exemplify. How am I living? How am I living? We don't worry. We're not concerned about the necessities of life because we know that God will provide them. That's what he tells us. Either he's telling us the truth or he's lying. Either I can depend upon this book or not. That's an issue that every one of us has to settle. Worrying about food, worrying about clothing, worrying about the necessities of this life should never take priority over serving God. And all of us are called to serve Him, are we not? We're called to serve Him in in, in multiple environments. We're called to serve Him in our homes, with one another. It can be a blessing, encouragement, opportunity to strengthen one another. We're called to serve Him in the community, in our workplaces, in our schools. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever sphere of influence we find ourselves, we are servants of the Most High God. And we minister His grace. We minister His kindness. We minister His love because the world needs it. Would you agree? What's that song? What the world needs now is what? Love. God's love. God's love. And so as we, as we pursue these dynamics, we remember that worry will immobilize us. You start worrying, you start getting anxious, you're dead in the water. It'll immobilize you. But trust in God moves us to action. When you make a decision, God, I'm going to trust you, all of a sudden the door is open. You now can move. You can go forward. What are some of the things we typically worry about? Money. Children. Health. Those are the top three. Work. I mean, there's a long list of stuff that we can be seduced to worry about. True? What about birds? Do birds worry? Do you suppose the birds worry where the next worm is going to come from? What do you think? I don't think so. Are the birds dependent on God's provision? Are you and I dependent on God's provision? Are birds more valuable than we, or are we more valuable than birds? We're more valuable than they. The birds don't grow, prepare, or store food, do they? But they do work for it. They go out and they work really hard. They fly around, they look for worms and bugs and whatever else they eat. They capture it, 
They take it to the little nest to feed their little families. But if you watch them closely, you may hear them worrying about the next worm. <laughs> they don't worry. They don't worry. God makes sure that the natural order of his creation supplies food for them whenever they need it. You ever say, well, that's a bird. Of course. It's hard for us to grasp, to really get hold of and, and, and keep hold of the fact that God will provide for us too. We don't have to worry. I suspect that every single person, if you're a believer, every, every single person in this room would testify to the fact that God has in some way miraculously provided for you. And you've gone, wow. Wow. He does that. Jesus is really teaching a total dependence on him. He's not teaching self-sufficiency. Yes, we work, but we are dependent upon him to provide through our work, through our efforts. The principle holds the same whether you're a bird or a human. You trust God. It's total dependence on him. You have to ask yourself, am I really dependent on God? Logically, rationally, because you're sitting here this morning and I'm telling you you should be, you're saying, yes, I am dependent on God. But every day as you live your life, do you acknowledge him and say, Lord, I am truly dependent on you. I'm dependent on you for my very next breath. I'm dependent on you to keep my heart ticking away. I'm dependent on you so that I can get up in the morning and make my way. God is faithful. And Jesus is teaching, is teaching us to focus our minds and our energies on efforts, not, not merely to attain to our necessities, but rather to his eternal values and purposes. Ask yourself, how can I spend less time worrying about, and you fill in the blank, how can I find, how spend less time worrying about whatever it is that you typically would worry about, and how can I spend more time serving God in this church? What do you think? Is it fair to say that, that the vast majority of Christians could be more invested in their local church? serving the community of the church, serving the Lord through the local church. But we're consumed with lots of other stuff, and we end up, we end up worrying and, and obsessing and being anxious about other stuff, gets all of our attention, and so we end up not serving. How can I spend less time worrying about? Again, you fill in the blank. So that I can spend more time ministering to people who really do need encouragement and need help. Visiting the sick, maybe prisoners, and sharing the gospel. How can I spend less time worrying about, you fill in the blank, and spend more time learning God's word? It's a constant challenge. Ask yourself, ask your neighbor, how much time do you spend in God's word? How much time do you memorize scripture? How much, spend, how much time 
You spend memorizing his word, meditating on his word, so that you can know it, so that you can obey it and be blessed by it. But most of the time, we're distracted. And we relegate God's values, the things that he values, to secondary or third or fourth place. Many of us would do well to ask ourselves this question every morning. Can I, by worrying, add a single hour to my life? You wake up in the morning, your eyes are wide open, ask yourself that question. Can I today, by worrying, add a single hour to my life? That kind of puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? It's a way, good way to start your day. Lord, I trust you today. I trust you. You are the master engineer. Do we have any engineers here? A few of you? Okay. He's the master engineer. He engineers events and circumstances in our life, some of which we're not exactly excited about. Isn't that true? But he's engineering events in our life to give us opportunities to, guess what? Trust him. Trust him. It's easy for us to grow anxious and fearful and worry about things that happen. Sometimes they catch us, <coughs> excuse me, unaware. We trust him. Daily we face new challenges. Daily we face new concerns. Daily we face new problems. And daily we face new choices. Today. What new choices are you facing today? Will you worry or will you pray? The alternative to worrying, the alternative to anxiety is to pray. Whatever God ordains and engineers in my life today, however threatening I may perceive it to be, I'm not going to worry about it. I refuse to worry. I refuse to be anxious. Because I know that there's a God in heaven. I know there's a God who sits still on the throne who is sovereign over everything, and for whatever his purpose is, he's ordained this issue and this event in my life. I don't need to worry. I need to trust him. And I need to pray. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, he says, don't be anxious about anything. I mean, whatever happens, don't be anxious. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He says, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Now you say, why thanks? Because you know that he is in charge. You know he's sovereign. You know he's at work in your life and work it through your life. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Notice, it's not with crabbing. It's not with moaning and complaining and kvetching. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then he says, in the peace of God, which passes or transcends all understanding, it just blows your mind. This peace comes upon you that guards your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. And I know you've experienced that. We trust him. We pray. We don't worry. Will worrying be of any help whatsoever, by the way? No. So instead of worrying, I substitute what? Prayer. 
God, thank you for this trial. Thank you for this difficulty. I know that you know that I need something to change in my life. I know that you know that I need to trust you today, maybe in a new way. A new facet of that that gem of trust is going to be polished in my life today. Worry can only damage our health. Isn't that true? Worry can cause the object of my worry to consume my thoughts. That's all I can think about. How many of us have spent sleepless nights in the past just going, "Ah," tossing and turning? You just can't get that thing out of your mind. What's the alternative? Pray. Pray. Get your Bible. Prop yourself up in the bed. Start reading your Bible. Start reading and praying. I promise you, you will go to sleep. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> I mean the peace of God. <laughs> Worry disrupts our productivity, doesn't it? Worry negatively affects the way we treat each other. You ever notice that? You're all consumed with worry and anxiety about something, and, and you just you're short with people. Mistreat one another. Worry reduces our ability to trust in God. It reduces our ability to trust in God. And it may, in fact, take time away from our span of life rather than add to it. Worry, beloved, accomplishes nothing. It destroys. It accomplishes. Does it make any sense to worry? Does it make any sense to be anxious about anything? No, it does not. Life means so much more than just stuff. It means so much more. Even Jesus acknowledges that. In the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, many of you are familiar with the account of the the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus has this interview with them. You have to appreciate the the larger context of that particular passage. Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And they have a destination to get to. And John records, he must go through Samaria. Now, normally, Jews would bypass Samaria because the Samaritans were uh, ceremonially unclean. Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. But Jesus must go through Samaria. So as they're on their way, they stop at this place called Sychar, where there's a well. And the disciples have on their minds, what do you think? Food. They are hungry. All they can think about is eating. So they go to the nearby village to get some food. In the meantime, they miss out on a revival that breaks out because of this one woman that Jesus has this interview with. You recall that? She just gets saved. She goes back in the village, gets all of her friends, brings them, 
Revival breaks out amongst the Samaritans. Miracles happen. And where are Jesus' disciples? Having lunch. (laughs) They finally get back after everything is said and done. They finally get back and they say, Jesus, we brought you a sandwich. (laughs) Do you want something to eat? Listen to his response. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What a rebuke. You know, you you missed the whole thing. All you guys were concerned about is eating. Food. Not my food. Not my father's food. It's It's all learning priorities, isn't it? I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's our example. We follow after him. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what we do. We encourage each other. Follow me as I follow Christ. It's not about my survival. It's not about me having my stuff. It's about me learning what it means to do the will of my Father. Or as Jesus would put it, remember when he was a little boy and the parents found him in the temple? Didn't you know I must be about my Father's business? Even from a child he understood that. Be about his Father's business. In another place, Jesus says, watch out. He warns us. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Sometimes we get caught up thinking, man, my significance is, is, is about all this. Look what, I, look what I have. I'm somebody. I'm important. You need to look at me and admire me because all I've been able to accumulate. He says, watch out. That's a trap. But we're Americans. We're trained and taught to accumulate. We live in the most abundant land in the world. Years ago, I took a couple years out of my life and traveled around the world. And I saw, I saw poverty and, and stuff that I was never accustomed to. I went into supermarkets in the Eastern Bloc countries with nothing on the shelves. I saw their appliances. Unbelievable. We have abundance. Just blows your mind. You talk to people who come here from someplace like that, a third world country or eastern country or someplace, just going in our supermarkets, it'll kill you, the choice. Fruit Loop Cheerios, chocolate Cheerios, regular Cheerios. I mean, just Cheerios. Just Cheerios. Just get one of each. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, the worries of this life. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. 
choke out the word so it results in a fruitless life. I think it's the goal of all of us that the end of our life, that, that our life really counts, right? That our life is born fruit, fruit that lasts. But if we get caught up in this life, in the worries of this life, we're dead in the water. If we allow the deceitfulness of wealth, which of course is part of the American way, to trap us, we will not be fruitful. We don't trust in wealth. We don't trust in money. I know it says on our money, in God we trust. But sometimes that's lip service, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If it's all about you, if it's all about your prosperity, if it's all about your, your stuff, in the end, you're, you lose in the end. You don't win, you lose. In another place, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, if, and it's your choice, if you're going to be my disciple, these are the conditions, non-negotiable. You must deny yourself. Be willing to pick up your cross and follow me every day. You can be a churchgoer. You can be a nice person. You can read your Bible. But if you don't make these choices, you have no guarantee that you're going to bear fruit. He goes on, he says, but whoever loses his life for me, you lay your life down for him. That's when you find it. That's when you're free. That's when you're truly free. How many want to be free? Free in this life. To know and experience the, the power of the living God in your life. Not just know about it, but to experience it. As long as you're holding on to your own life, as long as you're dependent on stuff, as long as you worry and are anxious about yours, you'll never know His power. And you'll never be free. One of the perennial questions that I hear is, Pastor, you know, I, I believe in God, but I, 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 I don't seem to have power. I don't, my prayers don't get, seem to be answered very much. And I said, of course. Of course, your priorities are wrong. It's all about you. You mean well, you say the right things, but down deep inside where you really live, it's not true. You're still holding on to this life. You're still holding on to the values of this. Your life is defined by this world still. No wonder there's no power. No wonder there's no joy. No wonder there's no freedom. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? How much is a soul worth? Wow. I'll trade it all. I'll give it all. Focusing only on the material aspects of life will only end up enslaving a person. You become a slave to the material. A slave. You can't, you find you can't let it go. You can't let it go because you're so dependent on it. You've come to so trust in it. And again, there's no freedom there. 
There's no joy there. It dominates your life. I think you'll agree with me that people, in order to get or possess more, they find themselves conflicted with others. Spouses argue over money. Husbands and wives argue over money more than any other subject. People steal in order to get and possess more, don't they? Employees crave, employers hoard, children pout, and nations war. Why? To possess more. We buy more and more insurance to protect all of our stuff, don't we? <laughs> Amazing. Life, life, living and enjoying what God has given ends up being ignored and or neglected in order to get and to possess more and more and more. Let me read to you from the book of James. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. What an indictment there. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Whoa, do we dare take those words seriously? That ought to cause us all to fall down and repent, huh? The basic problem for most people today is their priorities. They don't set right priorities. It's that simple. They don't determine what is really, truly to be first in their life. I would submit to you that the first priority of every person The very first priority should be to take care of your life eternally. Eternally. Parents, somehow by your example, you train your children from the time they can begin to conceptualize these things, you train them for eternity. You train them for eternity. You teach them by your life and your words. They watch you. They catch this eternal perspective from you. So that whatever they do, it has that perspective. There's always this component that says, I'm doing this because I know it's going to bear fruit for eternity. I'm investing in the kingdom of God. You can be a a professional person. You can be a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, a an accountant, an engineer, you could be anything. You could be a, a, a garbage collector, you'd be a handyman, you'd be a carpenter. It doesn't matter what you are, but whatever you do, you do as unto the Lord. I'm going to be the best carpenter I know how to be. I'm going to be the most honest carpenter. I'm not going to cheat people. I'm going to give them the very best price and estimate of what the work's going to cost. And I'm going to do the best job for them. 
and on and on and on. Why? Because I want God to be glorified. My value system is determined by God's value system. And I don't worry about what I'm going to get out of it because I know that God will provide. I can trust him. I can throw myself into his kingdom and his will and his way and his service. And I don't have to worry about little old me. Isn't that great? Notice in verse 30 of our passage in that uh, Matthew 6. Verse 30, <clears throat> five little words. Can you pick out the five words you think I'm going to focus on? <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Those, those words apply to every single one of us in one of two ways. The first way, it could be a challenge. A challenge to strengthen our faith. Jesus could be saying, very simply, your faith is small right now, but if you'll just believe me, if you'll trust me, if you'll trust what I say, if you'll do what I say, you'll strengthen your faith and enlarge your faith. You'll realize more and more and more that I am God, that I am sovereign, and that I am your Father in heaven, and I will supply your needs. You'll realize it more and more and more. You'll say, you are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. The Bible is, is a book that, among other things, chronicles his faithfulness. You read it page after page, book after book, episode after episode. You see, again, God is faithful. God is faithful. Even in the face of our faithlessness, he's still faithful. Somebody say, praise God. Hallelujah. Yes. It's worth being excited about. He says, you can trust me. Believe me. Come on now. Take that step of faith. Don't let anxiety and worry immobilize you. Take that step of faith. Abraham learned that, didn't he? Abraham is our great example of faith. Paul refers to him in Romans chapter 4. You read about him in the book of Genesis. God comes to Abraham. When he came to Abraham, Abraham was an uncircumcised Gentile idolater. He worshipped the moon god. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and somehow God communicates to him, impresses upon him, that he wants him to leave everything that meant security to his life, transfer all of his security needs onto God and follow God. And God said, I'll lead you to a place I'll show you when we get there. Wait a minute. Wouldn't you want to know exactly where you're going, how long it's going to take? Wouldn't you say, God, can we go to the AAA office and get the map with the green, you know, the green line? See where I'm going? You want me to what? You want me to follow you to a place that you'll show me when we get there? How long is it going to take? How long did it take? 25 years. <laughs> Do you think somewhere along the line, Abraham scratched his head, did I hear right? <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. No matter how long it takes, 
Trust me. Wait upon me. Don't succumb to worry and anxiety. I'm trustworthy. Build your faith. It can be a challenge to our faith. Or it can be a rebuke to our faith. Or faithlessness. Your faith may be terribly weak because you don't exercise it. If you want to build your muscles, do you start with real heavy weights to build muscle if you're going to do weight training? No, you start with very light weights. And you build up. You, you build muscles. To build your muscles, you have to exercise them against some resistance. And it's the same thing with building faith muscles, if I can use that language. There has to be some kind of resistance, some kind of opposition with which we say, Lord, I trust you. I know this is here. Okay, I'm going to trust you in the face of it. I'm not going to do the the quick and dirty. I'm not going to do the expedient. Lord, I'm going to go the long way. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to trust you. Faith is terribly weak. It's weak because you've never learned how to exercise that faith. You've never really trusted him. And as a result, you you are displeasing to him and you disappoint him. (gasps) Can we disappoint God? Oh, yeah. We grieve him by our lack of faith. We grieve him when we worry and we fret because we have no real reason to worry and fret and be anxious. We think we do, but in truth, we do not. God would just say, look, I know what you need. Quit distrusting me. Start trusting me. Proverbs 3 Verses 5 and 6 are some of the greatest verses in the Bible. They really summarize it all, don't they? Trust in the Lord with? You've got to reach for it. Not just party hard, not what's easy, not what's just comfortable, not just what you want. You've got to stretch. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then what's the alternative? Yeah, the logic for us is to lean on our own understanding. Well, I've got to figure out a way. We do our figuring, don't we? He says, no, don't do that. Don't go there. Trust in me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge me in all of your ways. In other words, everything we do, every life arena in which we function, we're always acknowledging him. Whatever I do, I do as unto him. Nothing's exempt. I want him to be honored and glorified by my life in everything I do. Do I fail? Absolutely. But at least I'm trying. I'm pursuing. I get back up. I dust myself off. I acknowledge my failure. I say, God, I'm sorry. I blew it again. But thank you that your grace covers all my foolishness. Take another shot at it. What's the guarantee if we trust in Him with all of our heart? If we don't lean on our understanding? If we acknowledge Him in all of our ways? What's the guarantee? 
<laughs> and he'll make your path crooked. He'll make your path bumpy. Confusing. No, he'll make your path what? How many want a straight path for their life? My gosh, it's right there. The formula is right there. You get caught up in worry and anxiety. What's going to happen? I love it when you come to me and say, Pastor, I need you. I need you. You're in bigger trouble than you think if you need me. You and I, as believers, are to be different from the non-believer. In this text, Jesus calls them the pagans, the non-believer. He says, for the pagans run after all these things. Whoa. Watch out when you catch yourself running after stuff. He says, don't be like them. The genuine believer is to be different. You ever, you, ever, you ever watch the news? Sometimes you watch the news. And like, it's like when Apple is coming out with its next version of its iPhone or something. You know what I'm talking about? And, and all the people are rushing to get to be first in line. I mean, three days in advance. Got to get, get, get my... You could probably order it through Amazon. I don't know. Just crazy to me. The pagans, the lost, the unbelievers, this is not a pejorative. This is Jesus' language. This is how we, they're tragic. You and I came out of the world. You and I were amongst the lost. We were pagans at one time, and we ran after all these things. We were feverish about getting our education. Oh, you got, I got to get this degree and that degree. I got to get the best job. I got to get the best. Why? Because I got to accumulate and have and have and have and have. The American dream, I got to have a house. I got to have seven cars. <laughs> got to have a million dollars before I retire. Why retire? Just keep working. I can't imagine retiring. I used to think one day I'll retire. I'm still doing this. <laughs> the lost are wrapped up in the world and they're wrapped up in the things of the world. They know nothing else. Does that break your heart? Does that break your heart? We used to be like that. We were blind, but now we. The pagans seek the good life that comes from possessions. Life to them is money, houses. But how many houses do we need? I talk to people all the time, Christians, who say, well, I'm buying another house. I'm buying another house. Would you be willing to sell some of them and donate the money to the church? (laughs) They did it in the first century. 
People owned houses and properties. And, and when the needs came up in the church, they sold the stuff and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. No questions asked. The good life. Furnishing. Some people refurnish their house every year. We do it in our house. My wife goes to garage sales. <laughs> Buys new, new treasures. She doesn't think I notice. I said, where did that come from? You notice? Oh, yeah, I notice. I walk around. I look. I see your little treasures. She's down in the children's church. I can say that right now. We think that accumulating all the, all the stuff of this world gives us some sense of significance. I are somebody. I'm secure. Look at my accomplishments. Look what I've done. Look how all I have. The pagans run after all these things. Not you and I. Not you and I. We don't run after all these things. There's a reason the pagans run after all these things. There's a reason they live that way. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, they know not Christ. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. We have everything because we have Christ. They don't know him. They don't know his family. We know each other. We grow to love each other. Pretty much. <laughs> Warts and all, huh? We work past our biases. We work past these things that we get, hang, we, we get hung up about. We learn what it means to look past the kind of idiosyncrasies and weirdness that we do to look in and love you. I love you. I love you. Not for what you can do. Not for what I can get from you. Because I see Jesus in you. They don't have the privilege of being part of God's family. Heartbreaking. They're strangers to the promises of God. The promises of His love. His care. His provision, His forgiveness. <gasps> to carry guilt with you for the rest of your life. They have no hope beyond this earth. They don't know the, the hope of heaven, and eternity. That's why they cling to this world and cling to the things of this life. They really know nothing except to seek this world and to secure whatever and however much their hearts desire. We, however, we have a Heavenly Father who knows our needs. We trust Him. We learn more and more and more and more to trust Him. Wow! We can trust Him. We, can, we encourage each other. This is why we, we gather not just in large groups, but we gather in small groups because we need to encourage each other to trust Him, don't we? 
because we all come to our small group meetings, to our mini churches, and we have our trials and our difficulties and our, and our struggles, and, and we need people to come around and say, you can trust him. You can trust him. He's faithful. Let me tell you how he met my needs. Let me tell you how I stepped out in faith and trust him. Let me tell you. Let me give you an example. Let me be a, a testimony to you. Oh, thank you so much. I need to hear that. We know Jesus. We know his people. We know his promises. We know the hope of heaven and glory. We can hardly wait. The older you get, the more mature you get in the Lord, the more everything in this life grows dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and you long for heaven. Right? Come, Lord Jesus. I can hardly wait. You have God's Spirit living in you. The pagan doesn't have God's Spirit. God's Spirit living in me empowers me, strengthens me, leads me, shows me the way. This is the way. Walk in it. I've got Spirit. When I'm weary, He lifts me up. When I'm weak, He strengthens me. When I'm feeling afraid, He gives me courage. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. You are faithful. I know I'm part of his family. And because of all that, the believer is to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. It becomes a matter of priority. I'm to leave the cares of this world up to him as I diligently go about my father's business. Give no care, really. It doesn't matter. I know God's going to provide. I know God's going to open a door. I know God is going to provide. I know it. I don't worry about it. Well, what about me? What about me? What, what am I going to get out of this? And, you know, you just, you just go serve him. We make a contribution to life as God has called us to do. And while doing so, we know that he will take care of all of our necessities. To seek his kingdom first means two things. The first thing it means is to submit to his sovereignty here and now. Now, what does it mean to submit to his sovereignty here and now? It means fundamentally to acknowledge that he's sovereign. And that he ordains things and he's engineering things. And whatever happens in my life at any given moment, if I get cancer, if my wife dies, whatever it is, I trust you. Job said it, didn't he? Even though you slay me, still I will trust you. We learn to live by faith, not by sight. We know that God is at work in our life and through our life. And he works through circumstances. Can I trust him when this thing comes at me and threatens me? Or am I going to worry and be anxious and be dead in the water? Am I going to trust him, evidenced by the fact that I'll step out in faith and continue to honor him, continue to serve him, continue to trust him and trust these things to him? Am I making sense? I submit to his sovereignty. I learn to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It also means 
to work for the future coming of his kingdom. In other words, I'm about my father's business. To work for the the coming of his kingdom. And among those things is the fact that I would really take seriously the whole idea, the whole command to make disciples. You have to ask yourself, who am I investing in spiritually? Who am I developing? Or am I just about my own business? Making a disciple can be messy business. How many know that? (laughs) Man, I'll tell you, it can be messy business. You get involved in someone's life and uh, you open doors and a Pandora's box to stuff. And you go, what was I thinking when I got involved in this person's life? But we must be about our father's business. Who are you developing? Who are you discipling? Who are you saying, come follow me as I follow Christ? It's not rocket science. It's just, come on, let's go. Jesus took unlearned men, fishermen, common everyday guys, and he said, follow me. Follow me. And they became world changers. He says the same thing to us. To seek his righteousness means very simply to live as God requires. No compromise. To live as he requires. And to truly seek these first, his kingdom and his righteousness, requires an unswerving loyalty to him in his value system, and it requires an uncompromised trust in him. I trust you no matter what. I trust you no matter what. What's most important to you? Think about that. Ponder that. What's really most important to me? Where do I invest my time, my energy, the money that God entrusts to me? That tells you what's most important to you. Other people, objects, money, pleasure, and the other desires, all these things compete in our life for priority, don't they? What should be our number one priority? God. Because any of these external things can quickly bump God out of first place if we don't actively choose to give Him first place in every area of our life. You have to choose. You make a choice. God made us choosing beings. You make a choice today. God, you're first. You're first. You're first. In the face of temptation, you're first. You're first. Whatever it is. When we get our priorities right, by the way, Jesus promised that something would change. He says, all these things will be given to you as well. All the stuff that you trusted to me, that you normally would worry and be anxious about, and you turn to me, and you put me first in my kingdom, my righteousness, oh, I'll take care of all that stuff too. Don't worry about it. How many remember the story of Solomon when he's about to uh, ascend to the, the, to the kingship of Israel in, fa- in place of his father David? Remember his prayer? Oh God, I, I'm not very smart. I don't have it together. I don't know what I'm doing. He says, give me a wise and discerning heart. The text goes on to say, it pleased God that he asked for that. He didn't ask for a long life. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for the life of his enemies. whole long list of stuff he could have asked for that we typically ask for. 
No, he said, give me a wise and discerning heart. And the text says, it pleased God that he asked for that. He told Solomon, because you asked for this, and you didn't ask for this long laundry list of stuff, I'm going to give you all the other stuff as a bonus. Oh, is that great? But the other stuff kind of got in his way, didn't it? Tripped him up late, late in life. Got him off his game. When we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, our Father takes care of our needs. And because our Heavenly Father cares for our needs, we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow. Manana. How many Spanish-speaking people do we have? How many Spanish speakers? Did I pronounce that right? Manana? I could hardly wait for this service. So I could use that word. <laughs> we have more Spanish, more Spanish-speaking people in this service than any of the other services. All the other services they went just. I told the people last night, but I said, oh, I can hardly wait to 1045. I can say manana. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. In that last verse, verse 34, in an appeal to be just simply being practical, Jesus explains that what we worry about happening tomorrow may not, in fact, even happen. You ever found yourself in that place? You're up all night. (gasps) Tomorrow comes, and all the stuff you're worried about never happened. Obviously, you're relieved, but you're thinking, you've got to be thinking, what was I so worried about? I wasted all that time and all that energy worrying, and the stuff I worried about never happened. We need to remember to reserve that energy for today, because each day, today has enough cares of its own, doesn't it? We only add today's burdens if we're worrying about tomorrow. Aren't you glad to know you don't have to worry about tomorrow? I give you permission to not worry about tomorrow. You're free. Enjoy your day today. I'm almost done. (laughs) Planning for tomorrow. Planning for tomorrow. Is time well spent. Worrying about tomorrow is time wasted. That simple. Careful planning is simply thinking about goals, steps, schedules, and ultimately trusting in God's guidance. We should plan, we should have an agenda, but ultimately we trust in God's guidance carry out those plans. And when done well, planning can alleviate worry. I can exhale. Worriers, by contrast, if you're a worrywart, a number of people, by the way, in the last couple of weeks have confessed to me, I'm a worrier, I'm a worrier. So this is for you. Warriors are consumed by fear 
and make it difficult to trust God. They let their plans, their fears, their worries interfere with their relationship with God. Beloved, don't let worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God today. I'm going to close with three passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And lastly, Isaiah, he says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. He is unmoved. Amen? Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor in the name of Jesus and encourage them. Do not worry. Do not be anxious for anything. Let's stand together one more time and sing God's praises. This is a rich, rich song that the worship team is going to lead us in. It really, it really just sums everything up that we've been talking about this morning.